All right. Well, we're back in our study again. This is our penultimate study, the study before the last ultimate study of chapter 26, penultimate study of the Confession of Faith on the Church. We wrapped up paragraph 14 last week, where we took uh, an in-depth look particularly at the phrase and the idea of holding communion. I gave the argument that historically this phrase in our confession was not only understood but practiced in the form of formal associationalism, and indeed we'll see even more uh, evidence of that today as well. As I said two weeks ago, paragraph 14 really establishes the rationale or foundation of interchurch communion, namely that all the churches of Christ compose the universal body of Christ. I read the Abingdon Association. I love how they say this. Uh, they, they say that particular assemblies of Christ make up but one Mount Zion. I really love that. It almost sounds like a great church name, doesn't it? Anyway. <clears throat> particular assemblies or churches make up but one Mount Zion. Furthermore, we saw that via our interchurch communion, we share in the gifts and graces of other churches and other members of those churches, and we get to share our own gifts and graces with them, and that this all redounds to the good and prosperity of the churches of Christ, their peace, increase of love, and mutual edification. Well, as I said several weeks ago, the purpose of paragraph 14 is really to establish the rationale and obligation of interchurch communion. It does not, however, fill in the details for us that much as to how all this plays out practically, um, and especially in the most difficult of circumstances. It leaves that to paragraph 15, which we will look at today. I have said many times in our discussion of congregationalism that a very common criticism of it that you will hear today and you hear throughout the centuries is that it provides no remedies or mechanism, if you will, for dealing with, for example, false doctrine, for dealing with the abuse of authority in the local church or uh, unjust church censures because all churches are independent in power. We read from Thomas Goodwin and Philip Nye, two of the congregational Westminster divines. They said they often heard this critique in their own day as well, Namely, quote, there is no allowed sufficient remedy for miscarriages of justice, though never so gross, no relief for wrongful sentences or persons injured thereby, no room for complaints, no power or effectual means to deal with the church or churches that fall into heresy, schism, etc. But everyone is left and may take liberty without control to do what is good in their own eyes." You guys are just coming in. There's a handout on the front little table there that you might make use of that we'll be reading in today. Well, contrary to that critique, that very kind of gloomy assessment, uh, though we may certainly find failures in the history of congregationalism, yet doctrinally and practically speaking, that critique is truly a straw man. Not only did congregationalists believe that there was a remedy and method for dealing with such methods or for such issues, but their history shows that they eagerly practice such means and methods. Now, most churches today, uh, you might say, well, I don't, I don't see this particularly today with those who call themselves congregationalists. And I would say in a lot of ways that's true. Um, but I would say a lot don't fully practice congregationalism as it was practiced, I would say, even the first 300 years. Or they do, but, but not entirely, as we'll see today. Okay? 
Historically, Congregationalists and the Baptists in that group dealt with those kinds of issues raised and didn't think that they were somehow acting outside of Congregationalism. And really, paragraph 15 demonstrates that for us in a nutshell. Okay? Well, let's go ahead and read paragraph 15. We're going to look at this paragraph in two parts, in two different lectures, today and next week. Today, we're going to deal with what is really the first two-thirds of the paragraph, which really just kind of outlines the kinds of things that an association of churches may and ought to deal with and how they deal with them. And then next week, we'll get to the last third of the paragraph, which explains and clarifies the powers of associations, what their power does consist of, particularly what it does not consist of, okay? But for now, let's just read the whole paragraph, and then we'll dive into the, that first section, all right? Paragraph 15, chapter 26. It says, In cases of difficulties or differences, either in point of doctrine or administration, wherein either the churches in general are concerned, <clears throat> or any one church, in their peace, union, and edification, or any member or members of any church are injured in or by any proceedings in censures not agreeable to truth and order, it is according to the mind of Christ that many churches holding communion together do by their messengers meet to consider and give their advice in or about that matter in difference to be reported to all the churches concerned. Howbeit these messengers assembled are not entrusted with any church power properly so-called, or with any jurisdiction over the churches themselves to exercise any censures either over any churches or persons, or to impose their determination on the churches or officers. All right. Well, today, as I said, we're dealing with the first two-thirds of the paragraph, which just to outline it, if you're looking at it, it deals, of course, with the beginning of the paragraph. And it ends with the phrase, to be reported to all the churches. To be reported to all the churches. That's really what we're looking at today. <clears throat> well, the way that I want us to look at that, and the way I want to explain this, is to look at historical examples of all the things that are mentioned here. Uh, not just because church history and church documents are fun. They're very fun. I just got a quote on... Jason, you and I can split this. It's the church, it's the record book for William Bridges' congregation. Uh, it's not too expensive. You can get uh, the similes for only 50 pounds. It's great. You just have to, we'll talk about that. Anyway, they are lots of fun, right? But that's not really why we're doing this. Um, the reason why I want us to look at these historical examples, particularly around the time of the confession, is to help us understand the confession uh, how it was understood and practiced by our forebears. If you remember, I read a quote last week from a historian who argued that by the time of the 1689 General Assembly, the Baptist practice of associationalism was, as he called it, a well-established practice. Well, we want to see what that well-established practice was. And indeed, some of the examples we'll look at today are 40 years before the assembly, and some are... Well, maybe about 40 years after the assembly. So you kind of get this good context within which we can understand the 1689, all right? <clears throat> Furthermore, we want to uh, not necessarily pine for those good old days, and we could dress like Puritans, and it'd be, it'd be a lot of fun. Uh, but we do want our own practice and our own associations to reflect the practices of especially those uh, 
around the time when our confession was established and adopted, okay? Well, let's begin, starting at the top then of the paragraph, paragraph 15, it begins by saying, in cases of difficulties or differences. Cases of difficulties or differences. Now, the confession, as it outlines the kinds of things that associations of churches may and ought to deal with, will be painting with very broad brushstrokes, so to speak, um, perhaps to encompass all the kinds of scenarios that you might find. And in these first two words, we might say, are the broadest of the brushstrokes, difficulties and differences. That could encompass a lot. The difference between these two is that with difficulties, it is more a matter that something is hard to discern what the right course of action is. It's just difficult. Maybe it's a very complex complicated matter over a long period of time. There's a lot of moving parts, as often might happen. That is indeed a difficulty. On the handout, we'll be going through these in the order they're written. Again, if you didn't grab one, they're in that back little entryway table. Um, on the handout, I've tried to, get to give examples of all of these. Sometimes they're funny because it's, it's asked as a hypothetical question, but you know there's a real-life situation behind that question. They're not all funny. Some of them are tragic. Um, but you'll definitely see these are not purely hypothetical questions. These are things that churches encountered, uh, many of which occur today, which is why it's great to read these things. Uh, there's nothing new under the sun, okay? <clears throat> but on your handout in this first example, I would consider this to be a difficulty. This is from the Western Association, the Association of Western England, 1735. And pay attention because it's going to get complicated very quickly. It says, the church of Bratton, having proposed a case as followeth, if a man should marry a second wife, and after they have lived together for some time, this second wife should elope from him and marry another man. Now, we use elope to mean someone who is unmarried runs away from their home and parents to get married. Legally, according to the Oxford English Dictionary, at least at this time, it could mean adultery. You're running away with a lover. You're, you're committing adultery. That's clearly what's going on in this case. Um, it says the second wife should elope from him and marry another man. Now, obviously, it's not a legal marriage. Uh, you know, this is 1730s. Maybe they're changing names. They're lying about things, but they are getting married somehow, okay? It continues. <clears throat> and after that, the man with whom she eloped should marry, and by her have many children, then the Lord should work grace in his heart, and he be convinced that it is his duty to be baptized and join himself to a, to a church of Christ. What is proper for a church to do in such a case? Okay, now consider what they just said. It's a little unclear what is entirely meant by some of this. Clearly, the lover of the lady that she left her husband for, all right, He's the real reason why this question is being asked, but he's entangled in this long history of adultery and sin and wickedness. He has now repented. A work of grace has been done in his heart. He's come to this church as a believer seeking to join them, and they're going, okay, what is proper for a church to do in such a case? Which is very understandable. Not only is it difficult to know how to advise the man himself, 
but to consider that this man is probably a very notorious and scandalous sinner. And yet he is going to be baptized and join the church. They want to make sure they handle it well. The association response. They say, answer, we think as this case is represented, if the man appear a real convert, baptism can't be denied him. But in Christian prudence, we think he ought to appear eminently gracious before he be admitted. Now, by eminently gracious, they mean it be very clear a work of grace has been wrought in his heart. Lest this be a quick thing, he run away, everyone knows who he is, uh, you know, he basically blasphemes the sacraments of the Lord and brings scandal upon the church and upon the gospel. So we think he ought to appear eminently gracious before he be admitted, and after his proposal for baptism, for the honor of religion, the church, we think, should, the text is unclear here, this case to him and desire him to wait some time in order to learn how far the honor of religion will be affected by the report of it in the world, and how the person himself may behave under such a waiting of the church. So the church should prudently probably make some inquiries into the life, into uh, his neighbors, into some of these other very complicated issues. Um, if he has been married to this woman, it, said, it seems like for a long time, and they have kids, her original husband probably left, and so it's, you'd have to be like, well, does he have to go back? No, that marriage is probably annulled now. But okay, let's think through this. And they also say, just to make him wait, because this will, in a certain sense, be a test of whether a work of grace has been done. Can he wait for the church to do its own due diligence, okay? That is definitely a difficulty. And in our own day, there are all kinds of similar situations a church might encounter. The craziest story I have ever heard, I was like, oh, Lord, you want people to get saved, but don't send that person to my church, Lord. I don't know how to handle that. I heard the story of a cartel hitman who got saved. It's like, oh, Lord, brother, God bless you. Let me give you a recommendation for some great churches down the street. Uh, that's a pickle you're going to have to think through. But praise God, right? And, and the Lord can handle that. But those are all excellent opportunities uh, for advice. That's definitely a difficulty. The confession mentions not only difficulties, however, but differences. Differences. By differences are most likely meant some kind of disagreement or conflict between two or more parties. Whereas the difficulty may be somewhat of a disagreement, it really has to do more with an intricate or complex case. With difficulty, there might not be any disagreement at all. They might agree they are all equally perplexed. But with differences, it's really a difference about opinion, and there's probably conflict. Now, with this one, because there are so many examples of this in old records, we'll continue on with the confession, because in the other categories that we are given, we will see some differences indeed, okay? Confession continues. In cases of difficulties or differences, either in point of doctrine or administration. Doctrine, of course, is pretty self-explanatory, and there are many examples of this, some of a graver nature, some more of a practical nature. Uh, but if you look, the second example in your handout comes from the 1689 General Assembly. It was asked by a church, whether believers were not actually reconciled to God, actually justified and adopted when Christ died. So you can imagine somebody 
some church wrestling with this. If Christ's death is effectual for salvation, then are the elect effectually saved when he died? The assembly answers, and their answer is quite good. They say that the reconciliation, justification, and adoption of believers are infallibly secured by the gracious purpose of God and merit of Jesus Christ. Yet none can be said to be actually reconciled, justified, and adopted until they are really implanted into Jesus Christ by faith. And so by virtue of this, their union with him have these fundamental benefits actually conveyed unto them. And this we conceive is fully evidenced because the scripture attributes all these benefits to faith as the instrumental cause of them. And scripture gives such representation of the state of the elect before faith as is altogether inconsistent with an actual right in reconciliation, justification, and adoption. In other words, we are described before faith as being far off. Enemies, not reconciled, cut off from the promises and all that, and to say, well, yeah, at the same time, we were reconciled, justified, and uh, adopted. No, no, not, not really. That would have to happen during conversion and with faith. Well, that's an example of a doctrinal uh, difficulty or difference. Furthermore, in addition to points of doctrine, the confession adds administration. Administration. Administration here is not totally defined, but I think the best way to read it would be broadly. I would say if doctrine is what is to be believed, administration is what is to be done. The many things a church must do. The Oxford English Dictionary gives this definition. I think it's fine. The action of carrying out or overseeing the tasks necessary to run an organization. There's a lot of those things that aren't necessarily doctrinal matters. Of course, they're not wholly separated from doctrine, but they are more practical matters of administration. These two can be difficult, and they can create differences. For example, next on your handout at the top of page, is that two? I think it says from the South Wales Association. It says, concerning the Lannistrant Church, in regard to the bigness of the church, distance of the members, want of discipline in government, which necessarily followeth, for want of often meetings together, it is desired that they should divide into three parts, and that a ministry and maintenance for the same be provided for each of them, to the end the brethren may be better edified, governed, and spared their long journeys to the church meetings. The work may more prosperously go on in each part of the country, and peace and holiness better preserved." Here again, the issues are not doctrinal, really. Uh, They have to do with the basic functioning of a church. They can't do these things because they don't have cars back then. Uh, It may be uh, many miles walk. It may take you many hours. Um, The church is spread out over a large area. And so the association advises that they split into three different congregations so that they might better administer the goings-on of the church better. Okay, that's an administration. Next, it continues, it says, wherein either the churches in general are concerned or any one church in their peace, union, and edification. Here it's not giving us the kinds of things per se that an association might attend to, but really the scope and the effects of the issues, the scope and the effects. It could be that only one uh, one church is concerned with a particular matter, or it may be that all churches are concerned. 
with both, an association may and ought to deal with the matter. Furthermore, it gives us the effects of the problems as well. They are affecting the peace, union, and edification of a church or churches. This language here echoes paragraph 14 in one of the benefits of interchurch communion. Namely, it says their peace, increase of love, and mutual edification. Here, the language is echoed with slight variation, peace, union, instead of love, same thing essentially, and edification. Basically, if something harms or is a threat to the peace, union, and edification of the churches, it is fair game. Again, painting with very broad brushstrokes, okay? Let's continue. Let's start from the phrase, wherein either the churches in general, just to kind of keep it going. It says, wherein either the churches in general are concerned or any one church in their peace, union, and edification, or any member or members of any church are injured in or by any proceedings in censures not agreeable to truth and order. Here, just take note that it's not just matters that affect churches as churches as a whole that may be dealt with, but individuals of those churches as well. If they be harmed by censures not agreeable to truth and order, that too can and ought to be dealt with by an association. Perhaps they've been disciplined, and maybe that discipline was contrary to truth. Maybe the the charges were not true. Maybe false accusations were made against them. Or maybe the discipline was warranted, the charges were accurate, but it was done in a disorderly manner. It was, as the confession says, not according to order. Or maybe both might be the problem, right? Well, we have lots of examples of these kinds of things. We'll look at a few of them. In some of these, an association vindicates a church and agrees that their censure was according to truth and order. Uh, In others, they say, actually, both of you are wrong. Uh, Both of you did some things wrong, and we have advice. Either way, associations can evaluate and respond to the accusations of unjust church censures. Continuing on, it says in your handout, next, uh, in the South Wales Association, in 1653, they say, we considered the condition of the Church of the Hay. And upon several complaints and proofs made against several disorderly persons, formerly noted by the said church, now noted there means they were cast out of the assembly. It doesn't just mean like, oh, they were, like they jotted down their names. That was a term commonly used at that time to speak of being cast out of fellowship. It comes from 2 Thessalonians 3.14, where Paul says, and this is how the language was then, most translations say this, but I'll read the KJV to give a flavor of that time. It says, if any man obey not our word by this epistle, note that man and have no company with him that he may be ashamed. There were a number of persons in that, in that church who had been disorderly and were therefore noted or cast out of the church. Continues explaining what these individuals did next. It says, In seeking to rend the church and set up themselves as is conceived as a church. You know what you call this? This is a good old-fashioned church split, right? There's nothing new under the sun. These people were rebuked. We don't know why. 
And they did what so many others attempt to do when they are rebuked. They do not heed the rebuke, but leave and seek to start a church of their own. And they cause division in the previous church, probably trying to make, take members with them as well. And it continues, whereby the church is much disturbed and unsettled, which may prove much to the dishonor of God and the grief of brethren and the hindrance of the work of God in the world. Very sad, very sad. The association then gives their response. It was ordered and concluded first that a letter be sent to the said disorderly brethren to exhort them to consider from whence they are fallen and their present practices and to forbear for the future to utter rash or scandalous words of the church, the receiving into or keeping in their fellowship such as are or shall be cast out by the church or any that shall come away from them, and that they attend upon the church ministry, not practicing in their private meetings any such ordinances as are proper to the churches of Christ. Basically, they say in their letter, you guys need to stop. Not only look at what you're doing, look at yourselves. Stop receiving others into your little private meetings, which is not a true church because you are under discipline. And stop practicing church ordinances because that's only proper for a church to do. You guys need to stop. It's kind of a cease and desist. They continue. And in case they will not hearken to this our advice, we will at our next meeting with one consent declare against and disown them. All the churches in the association will break off fellowship with these individuals if they continue in their rebellion. They continue. And with all, or nevertheless, yet... We desire that they would, at our said meeting, give their reasons unto us why they charge the church with disorders and what those disorders are, where they shall be fully heard in the business discussed and judged in the fear of the Lord according to Scripture and right reason. Part of the problem with what these uh, individuals had done, not only their disorders within the church, but that they hadn't taken their accusations, their supposed problems, to the association of sister churches in the first place. They're charging the church with disorders, or as the confession says, censures that are not according to order. But instead of bringing those to sister churches, they do what so many others do and seek to set themselves up in a church, which may lend credence to the idea that perhaps they know if they go to their sister churches, they'll be told the same thing, right? Which sometimes happens with obstinate people. But note, the association also basically says, nevertheless, we will hear you on these matters, seeking to bring about reconciliation. If you have legitimate grievances, we will acknowledge them to be such, but for now, you are acting disorderly, and if you continue on this way, we will have no fellowship with you because you are not a true church. Okay, very, very serious. Lastly, last example. This is a long one. But it's also what makes this so valuable. This, to my knowledge, is one of the longest recorded examples of an association giving advice to a church. And it just shows how in-depth these things could go. Uh, they end up admonishing both sides, both the church and their pastor, which is often the case. Uh, there's more often than not two sides to, to an issue. Um, but that's what they do in this case. And I have this is a very tiny snippet of the correspondence between this church and the association. What's also interesting is that this church in Bromsgrove was represented at the 1689 General Assembly 
by one of the persons named in the conflict, their pastor, John Eccles. In fact, he's recorded at several of the meetings in London. He was an older man. He had founded this church in 1666, and the events we are about to read took place approximately eight years after that first general assembly in 1697, okay? First, the letter from the church to the association, trimmed down for the sake of time. To the elders and messengers of the churches of the association at Upton upon Severn, the Church of Christ at Bromsgrove sendeth greeting. As to our present state, as some of you are not ignorant, with sorrow of heart we must acquaint you. It is very sad, and we fear the, and we dread the fear of God does not appear. The business, in short, is our brother Eccles, hath taken offense at the congregation upon the account of our judging something acted on his part and evil, whereupon we debated the matter with him, but could not bring it to any good issue, our brother vindicating himself and charging us with wronging him, whereat the glory of God and the credit of the gospel of our Lord Jesus suffered. Goes on to give more examples. Sometime later, the association responds in writing. Apparently, by this time, they seem to have gotten more details of what's happened. Other things have probably happened because they mention things that are not in the original letter. And apparently, by this time, they have, already, they have also spoken to Brother Eccles uh, in person. So they kind of have both sides of what's going on here. They say, to the Church of Christ in and, around, or in and about Bromsgrove, the elders and messengers met together, sendeth greeting. First, we do all of us greatly, now the text is missing here, but it probably says recommend, that Brother Eccles remain a member of the church of Bromsgrove, notwithstanding he is dismissed as to his pastoral charge and must remain so until further proceedings. Second, we do unanimously agree that Brother Eccles did not sinfully cover sin in sending away the girl privately. Under the circumstances to us represented and to such ends as we do from them conclude and believe he did. We'll see what they're referring to in a moment, okay? Third, yet we cannot but own that Brother Eccles was frivolous in his answer about her when asked afterward if he knew where she was and replied that he did not. Fourth, we fear Brother Eccles has been too forward in his words, he confessing before us that he had used these words, asserting the truth of a case as a thing by all that is sacred. Fifth, we agree that Brother Eccles, affirming that he would as soon be reconciled to the fallen angels as to them, unless they repented, whether he meant the whole or a part of the church, was a very rash and unadvised saying. Sixth, that his comparing them to Jeffreys in the West and to Joab smiting under the fifth rib, his denouncing, his denouncings and threatenings, his prediction of their decay and withering away as grass on the housetops was very unadvised, passionate, and uncharitable. They're very plain about where they think he was wrong. And he said, I would rather be reconciled to fallen angels than my former church. It's like, okay, you maybe calm down, pastor, okay? Then they continue with the church. First, we do count it upon a great weakness in those brethren who sent a message to their pastor by a sister and did not honor him by bringing the message themselves, it being in so weighty a case that at least someone or two brethren by them appointed ought to have come. Second, though Brother Eccles neglected his place in the church in tearing at his own house from the meeting, 
Yet the brethren ought to have showed their esteem of Brother Eccles' person and doctrine, and to have sent for him to have filled up his place in the ministry. First, because he offered to do it if they sent for him. Secondly, because as then, he was their pastor. Third, it is our opinion, certain folks greatly wronged Mrs. Eccles. Uh Uh-oh, pastor's wife. First lady Eccles is getting into trouble here. In comparing her to one Martin, a wicked person. And we therefore desire the church to make him sensible of his sin and lay him under blame for so doing, and that they will take cognizance of any other member that have transgressed in the like matter, like nature. Last of all, to Brother Whiting's case, by what doth appear to us by evidence against him, we cannot but believe Brother Whiting hath spoke much words in diverse places to several persons which directly tended to the great deformation of Brother Eccles, in the taking away of his good name against the churches in the world, for which, in our opinion, he ought to pass under the severest church censure, and also to go to Mr. Eccles and acknowledge that he hath sinned, not only against God, but against him, and acknowledge his evil to him, and so much the more, he being an ancient gospel minister. Uh, Brother Eccles had served for decades in gospel ministry, and he ought to have received that respect. And then lastly, I'll try to read this without choking up. Jason, somebody get tissue for Jason, okay? Um, We shall only add that we have, with as great impartiality as we could towards the party concerned, as also in sincerity and faithfulness to God, weighed and considered of these things, and also given our judgment concerning them, as possibly we could, sparing neither time nor passions to that end, and therefore hope it will not be ill-taken, If we add that in our judgment both sides have done amiss, as by the contents above written may more plainly be seen, that in too many things. And therefore we desire that sincerity, Christian denial, and hearty affection to peace and truth, both sides would endeavor to get a sense of and sorrowfully lay to heart everything wherein they find by what we have done, or otherwise themselves, be guilty." Truly humbling themselves and repenting before God and readily acknowledging to one another, endeavoring with the greatest care for the future to forbear all reflections, and especially before the world, one upon another, too much of which we perceive there hath been already to the sorrow of many hearts. And if it be possible, make glad the hearts of the people with the desirable news of peace and good agreement in all things. A day of humiliation by fasting and prayer is appointed to be kept by all the churches belonging to this association upon the 18th day of June next. How beautiful. How weighty. They call all parties involved to repent and own what they have done, and furthermore, to forgive one another. And lastly, they call that all the churches themselves in a day of humiliation and fasting, most likely uh, for the case of this church, Um, that they they also fast for them, that peace would be brought, okay? Well, those are the kinds of things, along with many others that we might discuss, uh, that churches holding communion ought, uh, can and ought to discuss and deal with. Just as an encouragement to you, uh, in all the records I have read, and on this uh, I have read quite a few um, of associations, synods, and church councils, not just Baptists, but Congregationalists in general, in England and North America. And I would say it is incredibly rare for a person 
to have the hubris to buck against the advice of a synod or association or council of churches. You almost rarely never read of it. And when you do, you go, well, that person is very vain. <laughs> um, the reason for that is because it's such a greater number of people. You know, the Congregationalists unashamedly argued that an association or a synod as we'll see next week, did not have church power properly so-called. doesn't mean they had no power. We'll look at that next week. Uh, they had a nuanced argument there. But in one sense, they would say, we agree that the power of an association is lesser than the power of a church insofar as that association does not have church power properly so-called. On the other hand, though, they would say, in another sense, we might say an association or synod has a greater power Insofar as there's a greater number of those assembled, there is more light, there is more wisdom, and a greater number uh, of counselors. And indeed, for that very reason, it is very hard to find cases when people do not repent and humble themselves and either forsake their heresy, their heterodoxy, um, or seek uh, uh, reconciliation with one another. So just be encouraged by that. All right, we're going to uh, finish. How are we doing on time? We're doing real good. We're cooking. Um, any questions before we move on? Take a coffee break. Yeah, Tom. I don't have that handout with me, so you're going to have to read it for me. Yeah. I don't know. I don't think it's necessary. It, I think they would have said deformation. Uh, I'd have to see. There's probably some Oxford English Dictionary use of the word at that time. Probably just his character. It's going against his character. Ben? It's, yeah, it's libel. It's slander. Um, yeah. Any other questions? Tom? What Tom is talking about there is with the Bromsgrove Church, uh, it says they sent uh, a sister, uh, some, some lady in the congregation, to deliver a message, but clearly just to deliver it. Um, and, you know, so often in conflict, uh, you have these communication breakdowns where you stop speaking to each other as people, and you just kind of what you're doing is like shooting your arrows of communication, either with an email or a text, uh, or even a phone call instead of saying, hey, can we sit down? 
And that's what the association said. You should have brought your message by at least one or two of the brethren, right, out of esteem. Um, and apparently, uh, from what we see elsewhere, the brother sent her away, like, probably being offended. And also, like, you can't even come and talk to me. You're just, okay, you're handing me this, right? So, yeah. All right. Well, lastly, before we end, let's finish the rest of the paragraph. Paragraph 15, it says, or the, this part of the paragraph, says, with all these cases, it is according to the mind of Christ that many, hold, many churches holding communion together do by their messengers meet to consider and give their advice in or about that matter indifference to be reported to all the churches concerned. That's basically what we saw in all those examples. The messengers, which are typically elders, um, it might be someone else in case an elder is circumstantially uh, hindered uh, or a church might not have elders at the time. They might send another representative. These are to come together, consider the matter, give their advice, and then that advice is to be reported to the churches concerned. Um, if it doesn't concern you, we're not going to you know, air out the dirty laundry there. But if all the churches are concerned... In some cases, if, the, if it's kind of a scandalous issue before the world, uh, associations might publish something publicly saying, hey, just so you know, um, this was not us who did that, or we've disciplined these people, but they're not with us anymore. We no longer own them, right? Um, but they, they report that to whoever is concerned. Well, one last thing I'd like us to do before we finish is to look actually at a part of uh, the constitution of our own Texas Association that deals with some of these matters. I want to show you this on the one hand, that you might be encouraged that this is what we seek to practice in our own association in terms of accountability uh, and giving advice, but to also show to you in plain writing some of your own privileges uh, for being a member of an, association, uh, of an association church of what you might do if, God forbid, you were to find yourself uh, in a difficulty um, or under a censure not according to truth and order. It says on the handout, last page, Article 6, Paragraph D, any complaint from a member or members of an association church regarding the abuse of pastoral authority in their own church must first be made to and through their own pastors. If after due process that church's pastors refuse to make the matter known to the association, a church member or members may appeal to the pastor or pastors of another member church this brings reconciliation to the satisfaction of all parties. The complaint will be considered sufficiently resolved. However, if reconciliation is not effected, the pastor or pastors must then make the matter known to the pastors of the association. So if you have found yourself in such a situation, uh, Jason and I were to be total turkeys and were to just be a diatrophies and try to take the power unto ourselves, and uh, we decide... We, we form a new committee to look at pastoral salaries, and we decide to give ourselves really big raises. And then those who oppose us were like, you are not submitting to pastoral authority. You're out of the church. Goodbye. Um, well, obviously, it says they, you ought to try to do due diligence through your own means of the, your own church first. Um, if you have been offended or something like that, don't just run right away. Um, what is in view here when it says... Uh, um, these accusations or complaint must first be made to and through their own pastors. Uh, think long, many, and probably difficult, painful conversations. Uh, but seeking to do that patiently 
to bring around a resolution. And only if that has been exhausted, um, then you call Pastor Jarrett or Price of Heritage, or you call Todd Gill or Dave Shiflett or any number of the brothers in the association. You have a meeting with them. Uh, and if resolution, if, a re- if, uh, if reconciliation is not affected, the matter will then go to the whole uh, assembly of the messengers and they will judge the matter. Um, and so just, just be encouraged if you found yourself in that situation, which God forbid uh, we would never want to happen, right? But these are the benefits of a confessional uh, and, and historical practice of congregationalism, all right? 